0: On today's episode of May the Record Reflect.
1: Best thing you can do is be yourself. What I mean is smile once in a while. I'm in a building in New Orleans. It's a 52-story building, and most of it is occupied by firms. Rarely do I see a smile in the elevator. A a very, very old juror study resulted in the recommendation to lawyers that, for God's sakes, once in a while, smile, and even smile at the jurors. How about look at them? So one of the really stupid lawyer things to do is they think that they have to convey this fight approach, this right look, I'm going to get you. No, that's really one thing lawyers do. Is that they're afraid to be themselves. So you be yourself.
0: That was Dominic Gianna, and this is May the Record Reflect. Happy New Year, and welcome to episode 50 of the monthly podcast of the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. I'm your host, Marcy Mangan. I'm pleased to bring back Dominic Gianna, a longtime NITA faculty member who has taught the art of advocacy, persuasion, and trial techniques throughout the world. Over the span of his legal career, he has brought over 150 cases to trial, served as a trial judge pro tem, and as a special master co-authored the book, Opening Statements, Winning in the Beginning by Winning the Beginning, provided legal commentary on court TV and other television networks, and lent his considerable experience as a legal consultant for the courtroom classic, My Cousin Vinny. When Dominic first joined me on the podcast in 2022, he taught us how to give him the old razzle-dazzle through effective storytelling and physical performance in the courtroom. In this episode, Dominic introduces us to the five most common cognitive biases and breaks down how they impact not just every human's way of thinking, but specifically how they impact the way jurors process information about a case. Persuasion really is an inside job, and today Dominic Gianna will lead you into the hearts and minds of jurors so you can make the most of the way they're naturally inclined to think. Here's our interview. Dominic Gianna, it is so nice to welcome you back to the podcast. It has been about two years now since your first time, and we talked about audience-centric advocacy, which is reaching jurors and judges through things like storytelling, your physical performance in the, in the courtroom, and psychological insights. And I'm excited because today we will be talking about psychological insights and specifically cognitive biases. So welcome, Dom.
1: Thank you, always good to be with you, Marcy.
0: It it is really fun. I think the nexus of psychology and advocacy is always so fascinating. And of course, it's very consequential to trial attorneys because as an advocate, you have to tell the audience, which is jurors or your judge, what it needs to know and what it wants to know about your case. And to do that, either you have to be a mind reader or you have to figure it out beforehand. And you have said that one of the most important insights you need to gain relates to cognitive bias. So if we could start with a refresher, what exactly is meant by cognitive bias?
1: We all realize that justice systems worldwide are human endeavors that rely on cognitive systems that are unsophisticated, and that are biased because they rely on people. And uh, people are people. Uh, people don't process information like computers. People process information like people. And so, as people, uh, we, uh, we like to, A, conserve energy, B, make right decisions, and C, we do it with what we have inside us. Uh the word is called is heuristics you know, heuristics are uh, preconceived notions uh they're decision making shortcuts and as we look at how can we as advocates persuade jurors, we have to look at the filters for what does the information does the evidence come through why? every trial lawyer has this experience. Why did they do that? How could they have said that? There was no evidence of that. Why did they ignore this? And really the answer is that human beings use mental shortcuts and, uh, they are really barriers. I like to make the analogy to Pink Floyd's "The wall. You know, pink was trying to break through the wall. Uh, He can't communicate with one side, and the other side can't communicate with him. Unfortunately, as beautifully and as terrifically as we teach the art of advocacy, which is the art of persuasion, in many cases, we're simply throwing bricks at a brick wall. We have to break through. And we have to break through because the mind is full of biases. And psychologists who study the persuasion process call these cognitive biases. Does it mean there's anything wrong with people? Not at all. So breaking through the wall means recognizing, understanding, and I like to say using cognitive biases to win. So what are we? Back to your question. Cognitive biases are errors in thinking and perception that make us think in a particular way even when it is appropriate, inappropriate, and wrong.
0: Well, then let's get to those five cognitive biases you mentioned. Can you tell us just quickly what they are, and then we'll break them down one by one?
1: Yeah, my, uh, my favorites uh, are, are these, and these are the five we'll talk about. Confirmation bias, availability bias, anchoring bias, hindsight bias, and affinity bias. We're also going to talk briefly about what I call the framing effect, which affects all of the biases. So those are the, those are the five, uh, Marcy, in the order of their importance, basically.
0: Well, I feel like the first bias that you mentioned, confirmation bias, is probably the most familiar to most listeners. It certainly was for me. What can you tell us about confirmation bias?
1: It's just what we think it is. Uh, we want our beliefs confirmed by other people. In other words, you know, we never tire hearing how right we are, never. Okay, um, this bias results in human beings, anybody, judges, jurors, you and I, um, looking for or over-evaluating information that confirms our beliefs, that supports our beliefs or assumptions, and ignoring or undervaluing information that contradicts them.
0: So it's like a filter
1: yeah, exactly. A uh, good example of it, and when I teach the a programs, we say we watch news that fits our views. Mm. so if you're a little bit maybe left to center, maybe you watch MSNBC if you 're a little bit conservative politically, maybe you watch Fox. If you're in the middle, maybe you watch PBS so we watch news that fits our views. In effect, we want to hear confirmed what our beliefs are by other people. <sighs>
0: So what is the impact on jurors, then, of confirmation bias?
1: Well, it's huge. Uh, Jurors don't vote for the evidence. They vote for their views. And so as advocates, we have the obligation to our clients to try to understand those views. Where did those views come from? Where are they based? What attitudes, beliefs, and values led these people? this person, a particular person, to a belief system that is so strong that he or she will ignore information that seemingly contradicts that confirmational bias. So our job right from the beginning is to try to figure out, try to determine in our case, what attitude, what value, what beliefs are consistent with what most people think about what is going to be the issue in the case. People vote for their views, not the evidence. It's not the best case that wins. Jurors say, who should win? And who should win, determined by what their beliefs are. If my story, my theme is in sync with the jurors, guess who's going to win?
0: Right. Because the more they see it and the more they hear it, the more they believe it, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. We we see what we believe, not believe what we say. Actually, uh, again going back to showing my age, Simon and Garfunkel said it really best in the boxer. You know, we we, <laughs> we we hear what we 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 hear what we want to hear, see what we want to see, and that's the message of the great song, the boxer. And that's true in the courtroom. So they see what they want to see, hear what they want to hear, to match their beliefs.
0: So then the the second cognitive bias that you mentioned is the anchoring bias. What is that?
1: Uh, the impact of first impressions. Mm. We okay. know intuitively that firsts are important and beginnings are critical. You know, I wrote the book on beginnings. and I'm happy to say it's in its 20th year. You know, the uh, anchoring bias acknowledges the impact of a first impression. Um. It's called an anchoring bias because when we hear something that rings the bell, that is in sync with our attitudes, beliefs, and values, that coincides you know, with our bias, food dyed red is bad. Okay? And we hear that first. We tend to use that piece of information as an anchor. We always go back to that. It's always there. That's why first beginnings are so important in a trial. and and we're going to see in a second, it ties in nicely with availability bias, which is what we're going to talk about now. So anchoring bias recognizes the value of anchoring. First impressions count. People rely, and here's the bias, people rely too heavily on an initial piece of information, the anchor, especially if it's compelling, if it's given to us in story form. And once the anchor is set, subsequent subsequent judgments are made by adjusting away from that anchor. But there's a bias toward interpreting information around this anchor.
0: So it seems to me that that's a good argument for why you want to present the bad facts about your own client first, because you get to make that first impression On what the story is and how the narrative goes, rather than letting opposing counsel bring it up and then they shape the narrative. What do you think?
1: Sure, it's called controlling the narrative. Talented political candidates control the narrative and frame the issue. So, in your in your example, a bad fact. You ignore. Do you ignore a bad fact? Of course not. You make it part of your story. You make it mean something that makes it persuasive, powerful for your case, rather than waiting for the other side to get it. That's a perfect example, Morrissey, of the need to acknowledge and recognize the phenomena we call the anchoring bias. So the
0: third bias is one that I had never heard of before, and it's called hindsight bias. What do you mean by that?
1: Ah, it's the, I knew it all along, you know. Marcy, I knew all along. from the first day I met you, you know that you would be a super podcast need a hit. I knew it, you know. I know those. I know those two who would never have made it. I I know they weren't going to made it. Make it. I, they seemed to be good, but I just knew that they would never, ever, stay together a long time. It's the I knew it all along effect. Uh, the tendency of all of us to believe after the event has happened that they could have predicted or expected it uh, to happen. It's the inclination to view events as having been more predictable than they actually were before the event took place. Look at how, how dangerous that is in a courtroom. We're hearing a case, a civil case. Well, the harm has already occurred. The event happened. How easy it is to say, ah, the defendant should have known. They should have predicted. It's what kills defense cases all the time. They should have. I would have. And it's always, it always comes down to, I would have. So that's why hindsight bias is so, so, so important in the courtroom. It's the, I always knew that bias.
0: It sounds like Monday morning quarterbacking, in a sense.
1: That's a good way to say it. Monday morning quarterbacking is always great quarterbacking. I live in New Orleans now. You know, we say that about the New Orleans Saints all the time.
0: <laughs> so how does it relate to jurors? How do how do you use hindsight bias to your advantage?
1: Well, it depends on what side I am on. I do I do both sides of the courtroom, plaintiff and defense work, all kinds of cases. So, let's start from the defense side. If I am on the defense side of the coin, the last thing I want is for my listeners to think, ah, anybody would have known. They should have guessed. They should have seen. So I have to inoculate my audience against that. I have to make sure, every way I can, that they go back in time before the incident occurred and put themselves in the shoes of the person who they're being judged. Harper Lee said it best, uh, Marcy, uh, through Atticus Finch. You don't get to know someone until you step into their shoes and walk around in them. So you must invite your audience, your jurors, your judge, to put their feet into the shoes of the defendant, in this case the defendant, the bad guy, and walk around them to see what was known then. We know, as a correlate to that, Marcy, that the way that jurors impose liability fault is through looking at knowledge and control who knew what and who had was in charge of the situation so the knowledge that we know now after the event wasn't there before throughout so the defendant i've got to make sure they walk in those shoes my audience my jurors my judge on the opposite side it's exactly what i want the jury to do the second guess And I'm going to darn well do everything I can to make them think that that's perfectly okay. Because every person, any reasonable person, would have known that if Jim walked up that ladder, he was going to fall. Or that a jet engine made so defectively was eventually going to fail. And here's what those defects were. How could they have missed it?
0: That's good advice for both sides, but uh, gosh, I have to admit that one is a tricky one for me to to wrap my brain around, you know, Um, focusing on what was known at the time rather than what is now known in hindsight only.
1: It's almost impossible, isn't it? It's difficult.
0: So the fourth type of cognitive bias is also kind of a tricky one, and that is called availability bias. What do you mean by that?
1: There are various definitions of availability bias, depending on uh, what article you read and perspective you're coming from. To my perspective, as a trial lawyer, as a teacher of advocacy and persuasion science, you know, the science of understanding what happens when someone tries to persuade a brain, for example, availability bias is the phenomena that people will use the information that is most easily available to them. So, for instance, in my trial, we just talked a second ago about anchoring bias. So if my beginning, my opening, my storytelling in the beginning is powerful, impactful, it generates emotions. Remember, people forget what we say, people forget what we do, but people never forget how we make them feel. So if my opening, my anchor is strong and emotional, and it contains solid facts. It contains logic and common sense. I've made that available to them right at the beginning. And the more easily a piece of information comes to mind, the more powerful it is. So hearing something first that's powerful. Uh, the phenomenon is we tend to go back to what we've heard that affects us emotionally, but also that is easily available to us. And so if my story is a simple story that makes a lot of sense, you know, my jurors, my judges are going to go back to that. And when the opponent goes second, for example, that story, that opening is going to be ingrained in their mind and they will not lose it. They'll keep coming back to that because that's what they've heard first. That's what affects them. And that seems to make most sense. So. uh the more easily a piece of information that comes to mind, the more weight is given. And so if it's given in the first, in the beginning, and it's strong and powerful in the story, it stays, it's where we go back to, especially if the other person is not quite as powerful, not quite as strong as hopefully you were. That's the availability of bias.
0: It sounds, and you'll have to tell me if I'm misinterpreting this, but it sounds a little bit like listeners or the audience or jurors are uh, averse to making decisions or doing more work than they have to. I don't want to say lazy, but um, they'll just grasp at the first thing that makes sense to them. Am I apprehending that correctly?
1: You got it right. Actually, there's a term for that. We call it the cognitive miser syndrome. All of us, all human beings, are cognitive misers. That means we do the least energetic thing we can to get something done. It's just <laughs> human. Jurors are cognitive misers. Why? Many reasons. First of which is they're in an alien atmosphere, and information is being thrown at them fast. Marcy, you and I know that you and I, our brains, as smart as we think we are, can really only process four or five chunks of information at a time to a juror. And even a judge, and I've sat as a judge and as a special master deciding cases before. You can only keep so much in there. And so any shortcut that helps the process is a welcome shortcut. So we do the least we have to do to make the decision. And that's why cognitive biases are so dangerous because they're easy to go to. These errors in thinking make us think in a particular way that's easy to get to. And so we rely on our biases, especially when we're convinced confirmation bias that they're right to make decisions.
0: I have not had the pleasure of serving on a jury yet. Um, I keep hoping it'll happen, but it hasn't. But I know that it's an... Um, It's an awesome responsibility to somebody to play a part in the decision that affects somebody else's outcome. And I would imagine that if you can make that easier, it relieves you a lot of anxiety as a juror. It's like, how am I going to juggle all of this information that's coming at me? Am I smart enough to process this? How will I remember? And then you've got this kind of low-hanging fruit kind of information that you've presented to the juror and of course they're going to grasp it because it just relieves that anxiety of and the tension of making decisions
1: it's terrifying i've actually sat on four jurors believe it or not that is hard to believe a bunch of crazy lawyers in louisiana let me sit on four criminal jurors and i trained most of them either through nita I was the director, you know, I was the director of trial advocacy at LSU Law School. I've taught persuasion all over the English-speaking world. The first curse case I heard was a simple theft from a Walmart. It involved three witnesses. Do you know that I had difficulty with that? Why? Because the prosecution, instead of calling the security guard who caught the perp, called the cashier first and then called the policeman who came to arrest the perp and then called the security guard who found who determined discovered that the customer had stolen something for the, for my fellow jurors that was an excusable error on the part of the prosecution because they didn't make it easy and i had difficulty why so i was thinking of other things than what i should have so people aren't stupid i've I've tried 150 jury trials. The people in the in, in the courtroom are the jurors. I believe you put 12 people in the jury box, or six or nine, they go into the room, the Holy Ghost comes down, and they do what's right most of the time. They really do, or at least they try to. So, back to your point. It's terrifying. It's horrifying. That's why in our of programs, we teach the wonder of simplicity the wonder of simplicity. Uh, my favorite mantra is keep it simple, sincere, and succinct. Show them, not tell them. Teach them, not preach. Text your case to them, not test their patience. So as we look at these, what these biases do, these biases help our poor victims in those jury box make sense of what is coming their way. Especially if, unfortunately, the lawyer doesn't make it simple and easy to follow. That's why storytelling is so important. That's why NIDA exists, to help people understand how people process information and how to make it better. So these biases can be our best friends.
0: So it sounds like if the prosecutor presented this information to you or in that case you were talking about, Uh, in a confusing fashion, maybe you didn't have what would be the fifth and final bias that we're going to talk about, the affinity bias. Maybe you didn't so much like that that prosecutor for making you confused, making you feel like you can't catch up, making you feel kind of dumb. What do you think?
1: Well, because I'm a lawyer, I I understand the problems. You can't get the witness there at 10 o'clock in the morning and the judge is screaming at them, call your next witness. I understand that, but my fellow jurors didn't. And they were pissed at the prosecutor. They were ticked. They were aggravated. Why didn't you make it easy for us? Now, I actually explained that to them during a recess. You know, it's sometimes you can't help. Oh, well, yeah, but. So the affinity bias is known as the halo effect. We tend to gravitate and accept what people say whom we like it's plain as simple as that the affinity bias means that we are influenced by people that we like and most of all we're influenced by people that are like ourselves most of us most of us like ourselves so when we receive a communication from someone that's like ourselves for example an expert witness she she's like my doctor i really love my doctor that halo effect Engulfs the case, and makes me want to believe that witness or accept that testimony. So, for lawyers, the halo effect is the ability to con- convey that likability, that sincerity, that honesty, that likability to jurors. Again, one of the reasons we have Nita to make people start stop acting like stupid lawyer things. You know, not. Stupid lawyer words, stupid lawyer tricks, stupid lawyer actions act like a simple human being, a caring human being. So the affinity bias effect lingers all during the trial, and it's especially important when we see those first four seconds. If the, for the first four seconds, audience, today's audiences in the year 2023, the first four seconds, this is what they expect of us, of someone getting up in front of us. That person is knowledgeable. In fact, the expert and as enthusiastic as hell. That's what we need in the first four seconds. So the lawyer who conveys that very quickly and then in the next 10 seconds gets their attention and keeps their attention with stories is the lawyer who takes full advantage of the halo effect.
0: And then you just build that trust on top of that foundation of likability, right? And
1: never, ever, ever lose it. Never say or do anything that is inconsistent with the image that they've created of you. First they will look to you.
0: So you mentioned don't do stupid lawyer tricks. But by that, I suppose you mean things like uh, don't use a lot of terms of art. Don't use Latin terms or legalese and be approachable and... I don't
1: know, maybe not too flashy. Well, I don't know about flashy. I'm pretty flashy. I tell my new students. I've
0: seen your suits. That's true.
1: You know, I, I tell my needed students, be yourself. Best thing you can do is be yourself. What I mean is smile once in a while. I'm in a building in New Orleans. It's a 52-story building, and most of it is occupied by law firms. Rarely do I see a smile in the elevator. A, a very, very old juror study uh, resulted in the recommendation to lawyers that, for God's sakes, once in a while, smile, and even smile at the jurors. How about look at them? So one of the really stupid lawyer things to do is they think that they have to convey this fight approach, this fight look. I'm going to get you. No. That's really one stupid thing lawyers do is that they're afraid to be themselves. So you be yourself. Be comfortable with yourself. You mentioned words. I mean, really, state your name for the record. Who says that? On which occasion did you? Did you have the occasion to? By whom (laughs) are you employed? Who talks like that? Only non-human beings talk like that. And so uh, affinity bias means... Being awareness, being aware of yourself, your 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 qualities and your characteristics. When people are nervous, for example, in our NIDA programs, we know the first day people act like robots. They are robots from a different planet. One of the things we try to do in NIDA is to make our participants human, and for that we learn simple language. We learn how to use hands, feet to move, to function as a human beings, to pretend that we're simply. at a a social function when we're talking to the jury, So affinity bias means everything, and it's particularly important, Marcy, because our obligation in the first moment of that trial, in addition to what I've told you, is to be the antidote to deception. The public out there hates lawyers for the most part. They don't trust us. We are salesmen. We are, quote, persuaders in the worst sense of the word. So showing those jurors right in the beginning that you are the antidote to deception goes a long way. Go back to what you said about the uh, in the first uh, talk about availability and anchoring bias, bringing up a bad fact. Oh, he's not trying to hide that. I'm I'm glad she said that. You know, she she wasn't trying to hide that. I'm comfortable with that. That's part of the uh, affinity bias. Also, the halo effect. I know we're going to talk about judges later. When we talk about judges later, we're going to talk about the halo effect also before judges.
0: Great. Well, why don't we talk about other people in the courtroom? It's not just jurors that we've been talking about. And one of the other people that's present in the courtroom is our very own selves, counsel. We're there. And so maybe the first biases that we need to address are our own.
1: No question. In fact, um, One of the topics that I always discuss when I talk about the topic of cognitive bias is how do we remedy it? One of the ways we remedy remedy a cognitive bias is to frame the issue, reframe the facts, reframe the perspective. Lawyers invariably are very, very guilty of confirmational bias. We don't want to hear what hurts us. It's especially true with young lawyers, and so we have to guard ourselves. We have to make sure that we take those blinders off. Don't be blind. No case is perfect. In fact, one exercise that I like to do at the of programs that I direct and run is I make our students write out a three-sentence opening statement for the other side, including in the best points on the other side. And if they don't include the best facts from the other side, they're not doing their job. So lawyers, can, and I'm guilty of it also, I'm about to read a brief on a motion that I want. And I know it's going to slam me. I, I, I hate to read it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear it. But I have to understand what's strong about it and then handle that strength in my, in my reply brief. So lawyers' confirmational bias, we tend really just to, to look at one side, We look at the good and we not look at the bad. Our obligation to our client is to look at both sides. Again, like Atticus Finch said, you don't really know someone until you step into their boots and walk around in them. Walk around in the other side's case. Write out your opening statement for the other side in three sentences or three paragraphs and then go from there.
0: Yeah, I think that's a wonderful tip. I love that idea. And it's easy. Three sentences. Yeah.
1: Yeah. If you can't do it in three sentences, you don't know your case. Yeah. If you can't write out your own opening statement in a minute, you don't know your case, do you?
0: Right. So what about the potential biases of your judge? What do they care about?
1: Judges have particular blinders that they have to deal with. First of all, they have attitudinal blinders. Everybody has an attitude. Uh, it's very easy, for example, to become impatient. I remember the first time I sat as a trial judge. I wanted to stand up like an Anita program and critique everybody. And, and thinking, for heaven's sake, ask this question. Ask that one. Why are you asking this, that, and the other? The first thing we have to realize is that judges do have that attitude to a problem because they get to see and they get to hear a lot of really bad advocacy. So we have to understand that. So being a good advocate goes a long way into curing the attitude of problems. Number two, political problems, political effects. I mean, really, you know, we all have political philosophies. I'm in the United States Fifth Circuit here. It's quite a politically and socially conservative jurisdiction, to say the least. So I have to structure my argument to, to to deal with that. And number three. Jur uh, judges are affected by cognitive biases. Okay? Uh, they like to hear what they say confirmed by other people too. No one likes to be wrong, so cognitive biases uh, affect judges. Not that it's a bad thing, but it's they're just they're just normal, and so we have to deal with that in the best way there can. Remember, these are mental shortcuts that lead to. Wrong decisions. Yeah,
0: um, well, in fact, you—that's what I wanted to mention—is that um, you said nobody wants to be wrong, and I'm thinking, no judge wants to be reversed, and they want their rulings to be consistent, kind of across the board.
1: Well, uh, they do. Um, that's why it's—it's a, it's a complicated uh, situation. Uh, the halo effect, for example, affects judges. Uh, I'm willing to listen more to that lawyer who is very organized, but seemingly unbiased, willing to look at all the facts objectively. Now, we know that he or she is not, but the willingness to help me look at the facts objectively is something that I'm going to use, and I may just not favor that side a little bit more, but I may give more credence to what that person said. So the Ham Effect is important. That's why it's so important. Uh, when went before a panel of judges, three diverse people, you know, to, uh, to appreciate the job that they have individually and as a group. For example, when a judge asks a question is sometimes to get the answer, but more likely is to get an answer from you that will affect judge number three, who he or she knows is really, really not in your favor, not going to vote for you. And it, and it, and it happens.
0: It's a little proxy battle, right?
1: Oh, it, it absolutely is a proxy battle, yeah. Judges also, because they don't have the mastery of the facts that we as trial lawyers do, can make uh, decisions based on incorrect facts or impressions based on irrelevant or incomplete information, especially taking into account the effect of confirmation bias. They absolutely think. You know, that the evidence in this case shows that foods made with red dye are really bad. And if that's not exactly true, or if there was other evidence to that, maybe it's not going to overcome the, the, the mindset that that's the case. Uh, judges are also especially affected by how a question or an issue is presented. So framing the issue is really the important thing. Uh, you know, for example, Uh, remedying the situation, one of the things over the biases, not just for judges, for for jurors, is an accident case. How many times have I said as a defense lawyer, folks, accidents happen. Sometimes accidents happen and nobody is at fault. Nobody is negligent. Now, the counter to that is accidents that are made because of errors that harm people, that violate the rules or the rule of common sense, or the law the rules, are the kinds of accidents that must be compensated and people must take personal responsibility for that. So sometimes, Marcy, with judges, you find yourself having to reframe the issue to meet the bias. A difficult thing.
0: Indeed. I think another difficult thing is going back to what you said about uh, working with a panel of judges it's hard enough to figure out all of the biases and the inclinations and preferences for one judge, but sometimes you're in front of three, a panel of three, or maybe you're before the United States Supreme Court and it's nine. So how do you bring all of those judges onto onto the same page without alienating any of them? Do you have any tricks or suggestions for that?
1: Sure. Every trial lawyer. Uh. Has argued appeals before a panel, three judges, sometimes five, sometimes the whole circuit, uh, when there's a controversy, uh, in, in a decision, sometimes you'll get the whole, for example, the fifth circuit, I've argued cases of 23 judges. Now, how do you, how do you get them, them all to think alike? Not going to happen. No, it's just not going to happen. Not going to happen. 23 different people with 23 different confirmational biases, 23 different you know, attitudes. But what, what you do is you look for the common denominator. What's the one thing about this case that most people's attitudes agree with? you know, For example, you know people in a hurry hurt. Most people will agree with that. That's true. So whether that person is in a car and runs through an intersection on a light and through a red light or that person's a surgeon doing a surgery, that's a common principle that we can all agree on. Your Honors, I think we all agree that people who hurry through things hurt people. And haste makes waste. We can all agree on that. So let's now look at this case in the way that the plaintiff looked at this case. And let's see if that's what happened in this case. Did the surgeon hurry? Was she too busy to think that you want to go on vacation? And here's what the facts are. So i one way to do that is to Try to find the common denominator, the central premise of your position that may match the central position of hopefully many, obviously not all. Just like in a jury, you're never going to get 12 juries who love you, who are on your side, because that's the voids your process. You're going to have friends, you're going to have enemies, and you're going to have neutrals.
0: Okay, so we have talked about jurors having cognitive biases. We've talked about ourselves having them and judges. Let's talk about expert witnesses. I understand that they have them too. Um, Personal that are just like everybody else and also professional um, biases, which are honed by their expertise in a niche and their prior experience maybe as an expert witness and the prevailing trends in their area of expertise. So let's talk a little bit about what we need to know about expert witnesses and their personal biases.
1: Those of us who are in litigation, we know there are two kinds of experts. We know there are people who really give opinions and people who sell opinions. I mean, we know the ones out there who will say anything you want them to. But putting them aside, the good people, the people who try to be honest, uh, are people subjected to their own cognitive biases? No question about it. And so, when we're on the uh, other side, for example, of an expert that we think is a bit biased, well, let, let's test that. Let's test the facts. Let's look at how she came to her conclusions. Maybe it is a product of a little bit of confirmational bias or availability of bias or whatever bias that is. So, uh, This has created a firestorm. They're now, again, researching this topic over the last three years, and in particular, getting ready for you in our podcast. uh, The papers are wide and varied. A lot of people are writing on this and pointing out the necessity to try to make our judicial system as open and as transparent as possible, recognizing that bias does exist.
0: So the last person we need to worry about in the courtroom is opposing counsel. Do you think that their biases, their unconscious biases, are worthy of our attention and consideration?
1: About two months ago, I participated in a mediation. And it's a mediation. I was on the defense side, so I had an opponent who represented two plaintiffs. It was obvious to the mediator that the plaintiff's position was almost totally untenable. But it also became obvious to the mediator and me that the opponent simply just wouldn't see it that way, would never see it that way. His bias was so strong on the facts that he could not see beyond those facts. So when you're opposing counsel, uh, especially as, really, 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 really into the confirmation bias, buying your own story and refusing to see the other side, it makes it impossible to get to yes. Mediations are getting to yes. Do people agree to disagree and then agree that a compromise is the right way to go? Well, it was impossible. So when you're opposing counsel, is really a true believer and really doesn't see the other side or doesn't want to see the other side or maybe can't see the other side because of whatever bias there is. That's hard to deal with, especially since it's our obligation to resolve cases, if not try them, and hopefully not try them if you can get a fair resolution beforehand.
0: So, how do you have a breakthrough?
1: Well, you like you do your best. You have to educate. And one of the, one of the remedies, uh, one of the mitigation tools, Morrissey, is to have to acknowledge and recognize the bias. So, as gently as you can. And in this case, I had a mediator who's very, very skilled. She was very skilled. She was a former judge who gradually made the lawyer see that looking at it from this way, totally this way, and not that way, was really harming the client. So doing your best respectfully. And uh, and, and again, I always, I, I always respect my opponent. Uh, I, I never get involved personal things with an opponent. I don't take anything personally, and I never, I never underestimate my opponent. Gracefully, you need to show why maybe there's a different way to look at the situation, so you do your best there. So education, um, reframing helps, uh, and you do your best you can there. So when your opponent is really, really, really a true believer and not willing to recognize the bias, then you have a problem. That maybe is the case that you go to try.
0: Okay, so speaking of true believers, this uh, next question is all about uh, true believers in the courtroom um, in the post-truth era. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about how to reach jurors in this this era where the truth is um, apparently a negotiation and find out how to persuade them um, when maybe scientific evidence is not convincing, or they don't trust authority, or they have suspicions and conspiracies that they've, they're adhering to. How hard is it to persuade people in this era than it was, say, 20 years ago, 10 years ago?
1: It is no surprise that it is harder to persuade people in this post-truth area than it was before. Uh, Why is that? Well, people are exposed to so much more information today than they ever were. I mean, social media, the internet. Um, People can easily find and consume information, and here we go, a confirmational bias that confirms their beliefs and avoid or dismiss information that challenges them. People are more resistant to changing their minds today, even when faced with strong evidence to the contrary.
0: So then, what hope do we have to getting past that barrier? Make it sound
1: impossible? Oh no, no, no. There's always you know you you, you always again the facts the facts are easy. Reframe, reframe it. Re- do the question what well, why why do then the statistics from the CDC you know tell us that people who are vaccinated are 84% less likely to get the, the Delta variant than if they didn't have the vaccination. How come all those poor people in the beginning of a cold, remember the first six months, how many people died? How many people wore respirators? The famous one for me, because I'm in, I'm in the entertainment business, is uh, the Broadway actor, Nick. Uh, he, he Unfortunately, he was one of the first to catch it. He didn't make it through 60 days. He lost his legs and then lost his life. But that's not, that's not the case. So that happens. Again, is it impossible to change everyone's mind? Probably. But again, reframing the issue or sharing the facts can maybe get people to look at it from a little bit a different uh, uh, perspective. Use stories to appeal. You know, I, You know, I believe that too, Jim. But, you know, I have a good friend of mine, and he thought the same thing. And let me tell you what happened. He got this, he got the symptoms, he took the vaccine, he made it, and he never got it again. And he said, today, I would never, ever, ever make that mistake again because it was so God-awful, that awful virus, the first time. So you have to build trust, Marcy. You have to uh, support an argument with facts. and You have to tell a story, a people story, like we we teach our data students.
0: It sounds like by doing that kind of outreach – not only are you kind of climbing a ladder where you've started with this one fact or this one story that everyone can agree on. And then you build from that using what the affinity bias, because you've made yourself likable and relatable and you've done outreach to that person to kind of build some coherence.
1: No question. Uh You show someone like that, that their opinions are valued and, and understood even if they're not agreed with and that they're respected that you respect that and look at it the other way and hopefully like you say if if uh, you've created a relationship with that person of trust and even likability then maybe just maybe you know that um, that will happen let me give you a let me give you a concrete example of that i was a special master on the louisiana state tobacco class action cases. The tobacco companies, for the first time, were ordered to fund a smoking cessation program. Everybody who was a smoker in the class could receive free smoking cessation for 10 years. We had to convince them that this was a good idea. Why? Well, you know, my grandfather lived in 98 and he was smoking a cigarette the day he died. You know, I know a lot of people who smoke. And yeah, I know once in a while you can get cancer and everything, but, you know, uh, my mother lived to 90. I'm in good health. Yeah, it, it's probably not going to happen to me. So we had to, with a concentrated marketing and public relations program, give them the facts. Show them what, would ha- what happens to you. What are the statistics are? What are the real numbers? And not just anecdotal, like Grandpa lived to 98. Smoking a cigarette as they closed the casket. So again, mm-hmm. we had to <laughs> respect the people's opinions, and because here we're talking to about an addiction, you know, a physical and physiological and psychological addiction that is almost impossible mm-hmm. to break. So, uh, but with kindness and dialogue and knowledge and respect, uh, we we signed up 100 a 137,000 people, class members signed up for smoking cessation, and we saved about thirty thousand lives.
0: Yeah, you had a breakthrough. Yeah. So you've mentioned a few times that you have trained for NIDA for for a long time and that you are a program director. You've got a program coming up in April of next year. And you teach all of these kinds of concepts that we've been talking about. You've got the one and only program in the United States that we offer at NIDA where this kind of persuasion science and Different types of uh, courtroom persuasion are are discussed and presented and practiced. So why don't you tell us about your program in New, in New Orleans?
1: What we have done is we've integrated persuasion science and the art of advocacy into the teaching of the skills. And Nita does a great job, all, every program, in teaching all the skills, directs and closes and openings and closings. Um. What I've tried to do, again, because of my background, and you know, my, my background is the theater background. I come from a, a Broadway theater family. I was, that's what I do but before right. I became a lawyer and then decided to make some money doing storytelling, making lawyers. But so what we do, what we've tried to do over the last uh, 37 years, this is our 37th year of the Gulf Coast program, by the way. We're proud of that. What I've done, especially in the last 10 years or so, is to integrate persuasion science into not just the trial programs, but into the deposition training program. So if, uh, if someone comes to uh, New Orleans and our programs are uh, held at the, uh, on beautiful Lake Pontchartrain at the University of New Orleans campus, uh, you will learn to integrate persuasion science into your practice. You will learn how to create those stories that to deal with cognitive biases, you will learn how to handle cognitive biases. You will practice during that, not just in trials, but in deposition. And to do that, obviously I can't do that myself. Uh, I'm lucky to have a great team. Judge Rhonda Laman from Seattle has been my wonderful uh, other section leader now for years. She brings a great, great, great depth of experience and marvelous teaching ability to the program. Uh, I bring uh, unusual people to the program. I bring, uh, a famous, internationally famous director, Kevin Newberry, who's directed 80 productions all over the world, operas. His recent show is opening on Broadway in February.
0: He's a friend of the podcast.
1: Yes, he did a podcast with you with, with Kate Douglas yep, last year, who was the author of the book, uh, The Survival of St. Joan, my show. And again, her, her show opens on uh, off Broadway in, in February. And uh, uh, she comes down sometimes with Kevin to talk storytelling. Bring in uh, David Mann. David Mann's done one of your podcasts.
0: Oh, we know David Mann. Yep.
1: Communication coach from Minneapolis. Uh, many years ago, or 20 years ago, I started, to uh, introduced David to, to Nita and to the LSU students. And he's gone uh, on from there. And so David comes down and teaches communication skills, verbal, nonverbal, breathing, movement, gestures, all of those things. And he's, and like all the people at Nita, everyone is, is user friendly. Everybody is warm and friendly. As you know, the prime and most important quality of a need a teacher is that the person cares, is warm and inviting, and supportive. And of course, all these people are. And I even bring my favorite. Of course, my favorite. He's my trial psychologist, the person who helps me put together all my trials. Dr. Dan Jacks from Edge LLC. He teaches uh, persuasion psychology, also, and specifically how to do a voir dire or voir dire if you live in Texas or Mississippi. So. Bringing together all the, the stars of NIDA as I, as, I, as, I, as I can, as much as I can, and all these very unique people gives it a mix that I'm very proud of and that I invite everyone to come and see for yourselves. Uh, and so we're April 14th and 19th, the first two days on Depot. We take a day off and then we do trials. And, Marcy, people who come to the trial program do a full and complete jury trial. Real jurors, real people. And then you watch and listen to the jurors deliberate, and you'll see how everything we've talked about is true, is real.
0: Yeah, fascinating stuff. So if anyone is interested in that, I will leave a link to the New Orleans Deposition Skills and Trial Skills courses in the show notes. So be sure to check that out. And I'll link to some of the other podcast episodes that you mentioned, Dom, for your faculty members.
1: And, and, and anyone can call me anytime. I'm easily available. Email me or call me. And I love to talk to prospective Anita participants. I've been doing it a long time. And uh, Anita's mission is a great mission.
0: Well, thank you. And thank you for coming to talk to us. We have reached the end of the substance. And so now it's time for a little bit of fun. So I've got two sign-off questions. And the first one, yep. The Uh-oh. first one is, if you could tell your baby lawyer self, just one piece of advice, with the benefit of your years in hindsight, which we talked about, what would you tell him?
1: We've actually said it already. I would I would tell them, you don't really know someone until you've walked in their shoes, put their shoes on, and walked around in them. The first thing as an advocate is to know the other side, prepare both sides of the case, and put yourself in the position of the people on the other side. The poor plaintiff who's been injured. The defense company has to defend this case. So see it from both sides. See it balanced from both sides. That's the the first piece of advice. Second piece of advice is just to live. The great trial lawyers live to learn. Do everything you can to teach yourself something. Go to museums. Go to films. Watch. Go to play. I mean, I'm a theater nut. I mean, I'm a theater person. Go to plays. Watch how. Watch how the directors make uh, an audience laugh or cry eight times a week on cue. Uh, read some of the great uh, uh, the books. The music. Uh, go to concerts. Uh, look at how a U2 concert begins. How does a Beyonce concert begins? if you want to find how to, how to open something? Uh, Lady Gaga. Uh, Taylor Swift. You know, do those things that expand your mind and your creativity. Remember, what we've been talking about are the two sides of the brain. We have two thought processes going on at any one time, conscious and unconscious. To exercise both sides of your brain, do that. So those are the two pieces of advice I give most lawyers. Branch out, never stop learning, and put yourself in somebody else's shoes.
0: So you've said that you are a self-confessed or self-professed, maybe I should say theater kid, Broadway kid. What TV shows or movies have you been watching or enjoying lately?
1: <laughs> I, I'm I'm my wife and I are now hooked on a uh, a Prime Video series called Billions.
0: Oh yes,
1: Billions. It's about and I don't normally like shows about lawyers. But this is about the conflict between the U.S. attorney of the Southern District of New York and a billionaire. And it's a classic case of conflict. You know, the essence of uh, drama is conflict. The essence of a great story is conflict. And Billions uh, really shows the battle, the conflict between these two giants. And it's thoroughly entertaining. It's uh, realistic in a sense, but not realistic in a sense. So we're absolutely heart- thoroughly hooked. And I just found out the thing ran for seven seasons. So we're on two. <laughs> So that's also being a Charles Adams and a Tim Burton fan. Wednesday is a great series.
0: We mentioned a few times the fact that the one and only deposition and trial skills training that deeply delves into persuasion science is happening in New Orleans this spring. So, it is possible for you not only to just listen to Dom, but to actually work directly with him and his team, which includes internationally renowned film, opera, and theater director Kevin Newberry and legal storytelling and presentation specialist David Mann, both of whom longtime listeners will recognize as friends of the podcast. You will also learn about Persuasion Science from Dr. Dan Jacks, who is one of America's foremost trial psychologists. The link for these programs is in the show notes in case you'd like to check it out. On behalf of all of us working hard here at NIDA to bring this podcast to fruition every month, thank you for tuning in today. One thing that would mean so much and help us out is if you could leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, You know how it is with algorithms. Reviews raise our profile and help get May the Record Reflect into the right ears. We're so glad to have you listening and learning, and do hope you'll share this episode, or any of the previous 49 episodes, with your colleagues and friends. Until next month's episode, happy lawyering! May the Record Reflect is a Nita Studio 71 production. Nita. We are advocacy enhanced, mentorship reimagined. Welcome
1: to the community.